Last week, I told you about my sophomore year at Wheaton College. I showed up on campus, and I went into the registrar's office, and I wrote a check for the first semester's tuition, and that emptied out my checking account. I had not a single penny left. I was done. I didn't know how I was going to pay for books. I, didn't know how I, I certainly didn't know how I was going to afford second semester. And I was fretting and sweating and worrying and everything else. And I was crying out to God, God, please, please bail me out. Please, I want to go to Wheaton. Please, I thought you told me to come here. Please, I need money. And that week, that week, remember what happened? $500 check got slipped under my door. Kapow! I could buy books. But I want to tell you about the rest of the story this morning. I didn't just sit in my dorm room twiddling my thumbs going, oh God, I need some bucks. Oh God, I need some bucks. Please send me some bucks. I mean, I did some of that. Yes, uncle. I was greatly distressed. <laughs> but I also told everybody I knew, I'm out of money. I need, I need money. I'm not going to be able to stay at Wien if I don't have any money. And so everybody's like, man, Max may not be able to stay whole years, you know, and they were worrying and praying for me. So I got the word out about my need, and, and they were praying, and I was praying, and then I did something else, which is uncharacteristic of me. I went out, and I applied for every job on campus and within walking distance of campus. I mean, I was filling out applications for that whole week, every night, during the afternoon, anytime I wasn't in class, and you know what happened? The dining hall called and said, congratulations, you are our new lottery winner. <laughs> And I got a job making like five something. It was some good money. It was four or five dollars an hour. I mean, it was big money. And with that job, I had that job sophomore year, junior year, and senior year. And I worked the dining hall. And by the time I was senior, I had two jobs on campus. And so I want to talk to you today about walking faith. I want to talk to you about how faith is not necessarily something that's passive. See, that's my tendency. My tendency is to be a wallflower. My tendency is to be very passive about things and want to sit in a dorm room and twiddle my thumbs and go, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, I need you. Oh, Lord, I need you to come through. That's my default setting. I like to call these kind of people the wallflowers. You know, you go to a dance, and they're the ones. You know, their legs moving. They would like to get on the floor, but only if somebody asks them, are they going to do it? Then, on the other end of the continuum, these are the go-getters. These are the guys that... They're not waiting on the wall for anybody. And they're certainly not waiting around for God to get his act together. Man, let's take the hill, baby, and let's go now. These are the go-make, you know, movers and shakers in life. If I'm a wallflower, my dad was a go-getter. I, I, every company he ever had, he was always in, in, he was in the finance industry. He was always in the top three companies or the top three offices within Bank One or whatever in terms of making money. He made the banking industry tons of money. And I remember asking him once, I was like, what's the one thing that was different from you and all these other managers? I mean, what did you do that was different? He's like, oh, really simple. All the other managers would sit in their office and wait for business to come in and people to go, I would like a loan. I went out to the jewelry store and said, hey, jeweler, you want to sell those diamond rings, don't you? Don't you have people who come in and don't have money? <gasps> I'm a bank. Oh! <laughs> and he made arrangements. He did that with car dealerships, with furniture stores. He was Dave Ramsey's worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> For many, many years, which is why when he retired, that's why he was such a big Dave Ramsey fan. He, would, he, was, he said, I'm doing penance for my, I'm doing penance for my personal professional career. Okay. So dad was a go-getter. This morning, I want you to kind of pause for a moment and ask yourself, 
am I more of a wallflower or am I more of a go-getter? And if you're not sure and you're married, trust me, your spouse knows. Just ask them, okay? Here's why I want you to know this, because the tendency, the tendency for us wallflowers is that we're going to sit and wait on God and sit and wait on God and sit and wait on God and hope and hope and hope. And at the end of the day, God doesn't come through and we're disappointed that God didn't move, that God didn't do something. And we're like, but God, I told you I needed. Now the go-getters, the go-getters, they're going to be so busy and so far ahead of God that they're, you know, there's going to be like a nuclear explosion. And when they come back into the house and their skin is all falling off and they're like, I don't understand. You know, we were going to take that hill. And the thing is, they got outside of God's protection. They, they went so far ahead of God, God was like, well, you know, there's a step of faith and then there's jumping off a cliff. Okay? All right? So I want to wade into that today. Faith, remember last week we said faith is confident action in response to God. Faith is confident action in response to what God has promised. Faith is confident action in response to what God has done. Faith is confident action in response to what God has made known. It's in response to God. It's confident action. And so today I want to suggest to you that maybe, maybe, Faith is not something that's passive. Faith is actually something that's active. And I like to call it walking faith because you're moving, you're going somewhere. And to do that, we're going to go right back to where we were in Joshua chapter 10. So if you had your Bible mark from last week, kapow, you're there. You don't even have to look at it. It's in the Old Testament, by the way. It's like one of the first 10 books. Um, Joshua chapter 10, that's where we're going to be. Joshua chapter 10. By way of reminder, remember Joshua was born a slave in Egypt. And he was like all the other Israelites. He was a slave. And then Moses came along and God did all those frog things and the Egyptians let him go. And he got to see it all firsthand. Joshua was one of the ten spies that, that Moses selected to go scope out the land that God had promised to give the Israelites. And remember, Joshua was one of the spies who came back and said, let's take it. This is awesome. And then eight of the spies were like, oh my goodness, there's giants and they have nuclear warheads and I'm really scared. And so the Israelites wandered around from place to place in the desert for another 40 years, okay? Joshua chapter 10, remember, happens after God stopped up the flow of the Jordan River. It happens after God knocked down the walls of Jericho. So God's done some big things for Joshua. Well, Joshua chapter 10, this is the context. Verse 7, or actually verse 6. The men of Gibeon quickly sent messengers to Joshua at his camp in Gilgal. Don't abandon your servants now. Come at once. Save us. Help us. What happened is the Gibeonites made a treaty with the Israelites. And all the other surrounding kingdoms were watching this group of people, the Israelites, come in and they were like, oh my goodness, they are like going to take over everything. This is bad, dude. And they sent messengers back and forth. Dude, that is so bad. Yes, it's bad. And so they, five kingdoms got together and formed an alliance. And they were like, we will crush them. Okay, so they march out into the battle. All five kingdoms aligned and they attacked Gibeon. And so Joshua, uh, this is verse 7, and this is where we are. So Joshua and his entire army, verse 7, including his best warriors, left Gilgal and set out for Gibeon. Don't be afraid of them, the Lord said, 
For I have given you victory over them, not a single one of them will be able to stand up to you. Here's the kicker, and it's verse 9. Joshua traveled all night from Gilgal and took the Amorite armies by surprise. Joshua traveled all, and you're like, huh? Well, let's unpack this a little bit, okay? God makes a promise. I'm going to give you victory. Joshua could have, right, been the wallflower type and been in his tent 20 miles away from the action and been going, God, we need you to come through. Please protect Gibeon. Please, God, we need your help. But he didn't stay in his tent. He mustered the entire Israelite army, assembled his best warriors. Clearly, he had a plan of attack. And do you know what he did? He marched all night long, 20 miles to where this attack was going to take place, uphill. Now, in the olden days, they didn't have armored personnel carriers. So this was like work. 20 miles lugging weapons, gear, and everything else uphill. And so when Joshua prays this prayer uh, in verse 12, and he says, let the sun stand still over Gibeon and the moon over the valley. And he's praying for God to do this big thing. It's after he's been up all night, having marched his entire army and, and thought of a surprise attack and done everything that he could do tactically. And then he asks God to do the impossible. And here's what I want you and me to see. Faith has this active component to it. And so as, over, the, over the past several weeks, and as we're talking about faith and we're kind of turning it around and looking at the underbelly of it and turning it sideways and looking at it, this morning I want to turn it just a little bit and suggest to you and me that faith has this active part to it. And there's something active that you and I can do as we're believing God to do the impossible. See, Joshua wasn't passive. His prayer was on the heels of this all-night march. In, in, at Wheaton College... My desperate player, God, come through for me, I need money, was also accompanied by me applying 50,000 places for a job. It wasn't just nothing. It wasn't passive, okay? Joshua knows this firsthand, by the way, because if you you want, you can flip back to chapter 3. A few months, months, months earlier, God tells the Israelites, I want you to cross the Jordan River. There's a problem. It's at flood stage. It's, it's flowing by in torrents. And this is what the Bible says. The Lord told Joshua, today I'll begin to make you a great leader in the eyes of all Israelites. In other words, watch out. Kapow, God power is about to happen. Give this command to the priests who carry the ark. When you reach the banks of the Jordan River, step in. Right? So here they are. They're at this river at flood stage. And they're literally stepping into the flooding river. And it's as they're in their, once their feet enter the river, something happens upstream, the water flow slows to a trickle and to nothing. And they're able to cross. This happens time and time and time again in Scripture. We see this kind of walking faith. We see where faith has this active component to it, okay? Um, The story of Jonathan, fast forward a number of years after Joshua's long dead. You have Jonathan, who's the son of King Saul, And the Philistine army now threatens the Israelites. And Jonathan in this moment, and I think it's in 1 Samuel 14, has this conversation with his armor bearer. And he says, you know, I think 
I think God is up to something. I think there's a God thing in this battle today. I think God's going to help us whoop those Philistines. I just don't know how yet. So here's what I think I'm going to do. I'm, let's go attack this, this group, this little squad, about five to ten men. And if they, if, as we're climbing to get to them, when they see us, if they say, come on up, you dogs, we'll know God's with us. But if they don't issue any kind of, you know, if they don't throw down the gauntlet, we'll, we'll know we're toast. And the armor bearer's response is great. It's like, uh, yeah, uh, okay, well, I'm compelled to do what you say, but this is not a good idea. <laughs> and sure enough, they go and boom, as they're crawling up, the Philistines do their, come on up, Israelite dog, so we can teach you a lesson. And Jonathan's like, kapow. And when he gets up there, the Bible says that the entire Philistine army was thrown into a panic. That's God doing the impossible. But it was with Jonathan doing what he could do, Jonathan taking steps of faith. We see it in Luke chapter 8 when this woman, who the New Living Translation says uh, was suffering from constant bleeding. She had a problem. She needed medical help. And so she makes her way through the crowd to touch Jesus' robe. And the Bible says as soon as she touched it, she was healed. Immediately is the word used. Immediately she was healed. Now, she could have, right? If she had been a wallflower, she would have stayed at home, hoping that maybe someday, hopefully, Jesus would come to her town or come to her house or, Lord, help me. But she knew there was this healing rabbi, and by golly, she got out of her bed and out of her home, and she forced her way through that crowd to where she touched the robe. So what I'm saying to you wallflowers who are like me, we need to have a little bit more action in our faith. And for those of you go-getters, you might want to consider pausing from time to time so that your skin doesn't fall off your body because, you know, it's painful, okay? So haven't you heard this a lot of times in the church? Well, all we can do now is pray. Don't they? And they always say it with that kind of God spiritual voice, don't they? Well, <clears throat> all we can do now is pray. And it's, it's kind of that statement of, well, it's only God can do something now. You know, we're kind of toast. <laughs> and, and I get that. And is that statement true? Yeah, but, but a lot of times we can pray and prepare. A lot of times we can pray and institute change in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. So there's a lot of times where we can have faith-filled prayer with faith-filled action, right? Let me give you some examples. A lot of times somebody will pray, God, give me a better marriage. That's an awesome prayer. That is a tremendous prayer right there. Woo, sign me up. Give me a better marriage. But you could also start talking kindly to your wife or your husband. You could start investing time, money, and energy into the relationship. You could actually apologize for offenses and wrong attitudes and actions, right? Um, a lot of times somebody will pray, pray, God, give me a job. Give me a job. I need a job. Give me a job. But, right, you could let everybody you know know that you're looking for a job. You could apply. You could volunteer at some places, right? Okay? Sometimes we pray, God, help me get out of debt. God, help me get out of debt. You could actually take some step actions where you calculate, and then you see the big number. 
which makes you have to go to Brewster's and charge some ice cream because it's just too much to face, okay? <laughs> no, <laughs> right? Okay, so you, you've got that component there. Lord, get me out of debt, but you could calculate what you owe. You could take steps. You could take the Financial Peace University class. You could <gasps> cut up your credit cards. No, don't say that. I didn't say that in church. It's bad. It's evil. Sometimes I hear young people and they'll say, I want God, give me, and this is their heartfelt prayer. God, give me a Christian wife. God, give me a Christian husband. I love the way Stephen Furtick puts it. He says this, stop clubbing. If you're clubbing, you're not going to find the Christian man or the Christian woman there. Just don't go to the clubs, okay? There are action steps that you can take, all right? In light of this, let me ask some questions. All right, remember last week we said, and I asked, is there one big thing, is there one big thing that you want or need God to do, the impossible in your life? Okay, as you're thinking about that one thing, let me ask some other questions. Have you learned everything that you could possibly learn about that? Have you? Um, Are you taking steps toward the God outcome that you're wanting and hoping in your heart? Is there any kind of preparation that's needed for this impossible thing? And lastly, have you taken the first step? Uh, Let me tell you about a friend of mine who had a horrible family relationship, okay? Uh, This happened to be with a sibling, and uh, uh, he and his sister were like, they didn't speak to each other. And And it was over a mom and dad issue, and this had gone on for quite some time. And he was in the right. He was so in the right about everything. And she was like, you know, okay, not to be judgmental, but I'm going to be judgmental in church. I took on his offense. <laughs> okay, so he, he's there, he's there. And what he did was he wanted the relationship restored. And he started praying for that. God, I want, I want to be able to actually talk to my sister again. I want to be able to talk to my sister. Well, he did several things in addition to praying. First, he, uh, he, he instituted an apology. I think he sent her some kind of gift, which opened the door of communication, and then he did the verbally, I'm sorry. Even though he felt he had nothing to apologize for, he did it anyway, okay? And then, after that, the door was cracked open a little bit more, and he kept taking steps toward his sister. He would call, and he would, as he would say, Max, I need you to pray for me this week. I'm making myself call my sister, Okay, well, I'll pray for you. <laughs> you know. And then on Sunday, I would be like, so, did you make the phone call? <sighs> you know, some weeks, yes. Some weeks, and, you know, that Sunday afternoon, he was picking up the phone and calling. And the funny thing is, after about a couple of years, the door opened wide open. And then they had the Thanksgiving, you know, get together, okay? It was faith. As far as he concerned, was concerned when it started out, this thing is impossible. She's never going to talk. This, is, this relationship is toast. It's gone. I mean, it's been nuked. There's no hope whatsoever. But he had faith. He prayed. And then he had some faith action that was woven into there, too, that God used. Let me tell you about a couple other friends. I'm going to call one Eric because he might be listening. Hopefully not, but we'll call him Eric. <laughs> I went to school with Eric. Um, we were at Asbury together, and... Um, uh, we were a couple of the students that the profs would be like, man, you should write, you should write, you should write. And Eric was like, oh, yes, I should write. The world needs to hear what I have to say. This is awesome. And, you know, we'd have these conversations. And sometimes, I admit, I was a little put off because I was like, 
Eric, you know, God's going to bust that bubble, buddy. Okay, but still, he had this drive. I'm going to write, I'm going to write, I'm going to write, I'm so going to write. In five years, you're going to see books, theological books with my name on them, da 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 okay? I also had this friend from Wheaton, and her real name is Julie, and, and Julie had the same thing. I'm going to write, only she wanted to write like children's stuff, okay? So, um, and that was her dream. Well, Eric, Eric graduated, went on to more graduate school and more graduate school, and he wrote all kinds of stuff, and it stayed right on his hard drive. Never went anywhere other than his hard drive. To this day, in the year 2011, and it's been more than 10 years after this dream he verbalized, not a single thing has come out with his name on it. Not written anything. Julie? Totally different story. She's got like a bucket load of stuff. And you know what she did? She started... Uh, first, she started with uh, setting aside time, regular time where she forced herself to write. I think it was like Tuesday and Thursday mornings, and she would make herself write for three hours, whether she wanted to or not. And then she hooked up with a group of local authors and whatnot in Cincinnati, and she would share her work and have them go and literally do the thing where she's like, okay, rip it apart. <sighs> tell me how I need to improve. And they would, and they would tell her, you know, oh, this is a good idea, but... <laughs> And then she'd kind of take her humble pie and make all the changes and then come back. And she kept doing that. And then her friends helped her to meet someone uh, at Harper Row. And then, boom, the Harper Row people were like, hey, this is pretty cool. And then before you knew it, boom, there was a book. And then there was something else. Eric and Julie, both of them had a dream. Both of them had something that seemed from, as far as they were concerned, that would be impossible. One is writing today, the other isn't, or at least isn't getting published. See, I love the way, again, Stephen Furtick puts it this way. He says, all too often we stand in hope instead of walking in faith. Faith has this active component to it. And I hope and pray that for your big impossible things, that you'll not just have faith, but there'll be some faith-filled action that's woven into it because that unlocks some really big God things. 